On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley in for Rick Zamper today. The city of Hamilton is looking to find new revenue streams. Uh, things are tight. Money is needed. But what does that mean? And could that mean new taxes for you? Councillor Tammy Wang is going to join us to talk about that. Could Burlington become part of a new mega city of Halton? Marianne Mead Ward, mayor of Burlington, is going to join us to discuss that. We have uh, Russian and Indian rockets trying to get onto the moon. How is it still so difficult to get to the moon 54 years after Neil Armstrong landed there? We'll, we'll get into that one and explore that a bit. We've got stuff on the Green Belt. We're going to talk about the Peach Festival in Winona. We've got the Haida having an anniversary and lots more. Stick with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is no shortage of talk about money. In any city these days, Toronto is strapped for cash. Other cities are strapped for cash. Certainly Hamilton is not in a different position there. Um, we are a city that needs money and has a lot of expenses and is trying to find ways to find some of that. So the city has now asked its staff to see if it can find ways to enhance our revenue opportunities, to generate new revenue to deal with some of the issues we face. The question is, what does that mean? Tammy Wang is the councillor for Ward 4 in the city. She joins us now. Councillor, thank you for this today. Hello. Hello. Hello, Councillor Wang. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. I heard a little bit of a weird interference, so I was a little worried that I got cut off for a second. You are not cut off. You are fully on the air, so uh, (laughs) we appreciate you doing this today. Uh, You know, I, I, I read this, and I think a lot of people did or heard about this, and I think the first question that most people had when they heard this, because it wasn't entirely clear, what kind of things could this mean? Uh, In other words, is this something that is essentially new taxes, or is there some other way to generate revenue, do you think? At this point, everything's on the table, because what we don't know right now is We have always traditionally had two forms of revenue sources from the city of Hamilton. One is taxes from our residents or from commercial or industrial or anything like that. So taxes in general. And then the second is fees. So it could be from recreation fees. It could be rental of spaces or anything like that. So there have only really been two levels of revenue services. And then there would have been some um, mix of different ways that we would have attracted revenue that way. Um, And nowadays, what we're thinking about is, well, as a business, you have to think about this as the city of Hamilton, we are a corporation. And as a business, they wouldn't have put all of their eggs in the one basket. Like, so they wouldn't have said, oh, we're just going to rely on the one level of revenue and that's it. Businesses that are sustainable, businesses that work for their stakeholders, are always going to find different levels of revenue in order to be much more sustainable and drive drive more um, value for their for their shareholders or their stakeholders. So this is what Councillor Maureen Wilson is talking about too. Is it's not just saying okay, well we have traditionally only had these two. What else can we do? So now the city of Hamilton is exploring. What are other municipalities able to pull in? Is it creating, maybe it's creating more arm's length organizations, maybe it's creating more small businesses. Currently, the city of Hamilton does have a third revenue source, which is we have um, the Woodward Water Treatment Plant 
you you know that in Ward 4, there's that giant ball, right? that giant yep. globe. That is methane um, capture. So that comes straight from the Woodward treatment plant. We capture methane that's coming off of our, essentially our waste, um, our wastewater treatment. That is a cogeneration. Uh, it actually, cre- we actually take that methane, we burn it off and we might create some, we might create energy from burning off that methane, but we can also sell that methane to other places. There's also um, currently, you know, the after the Woodward treatment plant, there's all that solid stuff that's kind of in the Woodward treatment plant. Okay. That stuff can actually be turned into pellets. It could be turned into some sort of fuel source. Actually, currently we have another business. Actually, we actually sell that. Well, sorry, we don't sell that. We actually have another company that partners with us and they take that and they actually go off and do something else with it. So that could actually be another revenue source that we're not capitalizing mm. on. And, so, no, no, and these are these are like those are the things I think that will make people will set people's minds at ease that that okay, if we have these things that are already being done that we could find some new revenues, that's great. I think what a lot of people are very concerned about, they see what's happening in Toronto, they've heard about Olivia Chow proposing a mayor or a municipal tax mm. is a municipal tax on the table as a possibility for a municipal sales tax in Hamilton. I don't know. But at the same time, I'm not going to say yes or no, but I would say that it is definitely on the table. Um, I, what we are all very, very, very aware of is Hamilton, we are a very expensive city. We have a lot more costs that are being downloaded to us from different levels of government. And we also know that the average income in Hamilton is far lower than any other city in Ontario right now. So the fact is, we know that it is a time, it is a revenue crunch right now on both the corporation and on our taxpayers. So I will say that we are very, very aware that our residents cannot afford more of a tax. So this is why we're trying to be innovative. We are trying to find different sources. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie and say that that's not on the table, but at this, we we absolutely recognize the situation that we're in today. Would, so we've heard from a number of councillors already uh, on the record that the city is probably looking at something in the neighbourhood of a 10% tax increase. That's the expectation coming up this year, whether it's nine, whether it's eight, whether it's 10, whatever. It's in that, it's, it's going to be a large increase. We had mm-hmm. 5.8 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, would people stand for more taxes even, if that was a decision that was made, would people be okay with that? Would, do you think they would be accepting of being hit with even more taxes in the city, even if it was to pay for things that are essential? Well, Scott, you're the one that's talking to the people every single day, just as I am. What do you think? Honestly, I would say n- there would be a lot of blowback if all of a sudden it was a 10% tax increase or thereabouts plus a municipal tax. I don't think people would be happy at all. Absolutely. I don't think so either. But at the same time, it's also part of the responsibility as me as a city councillor is that we have to be a revenue neutral organization. We cannot go into deficit. I am also very aware that the people we are taxing cannot afford it. So I think it's a delicate balance. We do need, we have increased costs that are coming forward, costs that we know should not be pushed onto the property taxpayer at all. 
But at the same time, we are also working really hard at finding new revenue sources. We are also looking at our economic development team to help us with attracting new business so we can start to offset the ratio between residential and industrial tax rates, right? So a lot of this is happening. It's all happening at the exact same time. We just can't make it happen Mm. overnight. So we are looking at it in a stepped in and phased in process to make it work for everyone. Uh, That is Ward 4 Councillor Tammy Wang. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A facilitator is going to be put in place to determine whether Burlington will end up being part of a megacity, a giant city of Halton that would draw in all the municipalities around there and become one giant megacity, which means that my next guest uh, may, who knows, may down the road not just be the mayor of Burlington, but may be the city of the megacity of Halton. I'm not sure. Mary Ann Mead Ward, mayor of Burlington. Good morning. Good morning. How how does that sound to you? Mayor of the giant (laughs) mega city of Halton instead of just Burlington. Well, I would certainly run if that that became the case, but you know, it'll never happen. The facilitators are coming uh, September 11, and I do believe that they will listen to us. And we have been very, very clear when they tried this the last time. The constituents don't want it. The regional council doesn't want it. The local councils don't want it. uh, And there's no reason for it. And we operate, uh, we operate well the way that we are, but we're open to looking at different ways of delivering service. And the number one criteria for me and for us is, does this make life better for our constituents? And if so, we need to look at it. But a megacity won't do that. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. Uh, they, would, they would hear very quickly from constituents. Thousands of people wrote the last time that they uh, floated that idea and said, don't, don't do that. Does one of the, is one of the things that you would point to, and I mean, I know you don't want to be uh, putting shots over the bow anywhere, but is one of the things you would point to if this was to become a serious, serious discussion, the amalgamation in Hamilton and how that has gone, that it has, you know, some people are all for it, but other people are still griping about it years later? Yeah, we still. I still get letters from people in Waterdown who want to join Burlington, and fortunately I can't do anything about that, but... You know, I think, uh, again, the criteria has to be what is in the best interest of our constituents and local government works. It is the closest level of government to the people. We are directly accountable. And the larger you get, the farther you get from the people that you serve. So I uh, I believe that what the facilitator will hear is, hey, look, there are these services at the region that the locals can deliver better. And, uh, and let's have a serious conversation about that. So why are you hearing then, where's this thought coming from? What are you hearing as the impetus for why this discussion is even being held? Well, I think the government is looking at how to, you know, fundamentally, how do we deliver services to constituents? Uh, Regional review is tied up with, uh, can we get housing built faster? Can we get complete communities built faster? Uh, if we have a different governance model or, or uh, you know, look at, look at regional structure. And, and so I think it's a good question to ask. And our council at uh, City of Burlington unanimously 
uh, endorsed a set of principles for the conversation. And the first one is, does it make life better for our constituents? But we also look at some of the services that are done at both levels. And we think there's a conversation to be had about sending those directly to the locals, devolving them from the region to the city. That would include planning, which is already under discussion, uh, parks planning, transportation. We have two levels of roads, regional and city. Uh, we think we can absorb that. Heritage is done at both levels. Economic development is done at both levels. So we outlined that in our letter. Uh, going the other way, though, we want to have a conversation about whether transit should be delivered on a regional basis. So I think these I think there's a real opportunity to have a conversation around service by service, what makes the most sense, what can we deliver better, and how. And that's the conversation that we will have with the facilitator when they come uh, September 11. It does seem, and I may be misreading this, but it certainly does seem when you listen to many of the comments from the minister that the driving thought behind this or, or urgency behind this is housing, that, that for whatever reason, that somehow the idea is maybe if we have this giant mega city, housing can get done better. Why would housing be done better? What's the theory anyway, why housing would somehow be, be able to be put up more or faster in a mega city rather than individual cities? Well, we, you know, they've already started the, the devolution of planning from the region to the locals, and we think that's exactly the right decision. In fact, we've uh, asked them to do it sooner. They're, they're talking about delaying that till next year. So we've advocated for them to get on with it because there is planning at two levels now. So when somebody brings in an application, it has to clear city, it has to clear region. So we, uh, you know, we believe that we can deliver that service faster at the city and we've asked to absorb all of the planning functions sooner rather than later. So we'll continue uh, that message and I think they're open to hearing that and they're receptive to hearing that. And and I'm frankly not hearing that the government wants to mega city us. What I'm hearing is they want to know from us what we need at what level to get housing built faster and that's exactly what we'll tell them. Let me go back to the Hamilton example for just a second, because you mentioned about Waterdown wanting to come into Burlington. There are people in Flamborough, in Dundas, in Ancaster, in Stony Creek, who say, I'm not the same as our, our situation, our life is not the same as those in downtown Hamilton, or even in some of the other suburbs. We have our own community. Is Bur Are Burlington, Oakville, Milton, and Halton Hills interchangeable? Could you easily meld into one and all of you are similar enough that there's no disparity like we would see here? We're, there's lots of differences. Each community is unique and uh, different sizes, different different forms, uh, more greenfield in Milton, more density intensification uh, in Burlington. Uh, Halton Hills, of course, has a lot of rural, so, so does Burlington, half rural. So there's unique circumstances in each community. And the number one criteria has to be does this make life better for our constituents? Mm. And and that includes, can we get complete communities and housing built faster? And, and we believe unanimously, there's no debate about this, that local level of government is the best position to do that. We know our unique communities and neighborhoods. There's unique neighborhoods within communities that we have to pay attention to. We know that better than, uh, than our neighbors, and they know their communities better than we do. So we believe that, um, you know, we need to absorb more, uh, more services at the local level, the ones I've outlined, and we'll have a conversation about the remainder to see if this helps our constituents. Just very quickly, uh, the facilitator is supposed to be named by September 11. Do you have any idea 
what sort of time frame it is after that that you're expecting to hear one way or another where this is going, or is it open ended? We haven't heard that, but we we have been preparing uh, really since the last time this conversation was started in the last term of council. Uh, but we've, uh, as a council, endorsed, as I said, a set of principles. We'll be ready when the facilitators come. We're continuing those conversations, uh, looking in a more deep way about each service to see what should uh, what should stay at the region, what should come to the locals, and. The bottom line is, does it make life better for our constituents? So we're we're going to be ready when they come, and uh, we hope that very quickly after that, the facilitators will make their recommendations because we've been living in this period of uncertainty now for a couple of years, and we just need to get on with the focus, which is building complete communities for our constituents where people want to live and planning that for the next seven generations. Mm. Marianne Meadward, Mayor of the City of Burlington, I uh, really appreciate you doing this this morning. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's been a busy week in the Greenbelt story here in Ontario. The chief of staff for the housing minister has resigned and the RCMP is now investigating what has been going on. Uh, Where does this thing go from here? Let me bring in Colin DeMello. He's the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, how are you this morning? Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Hey, thrilled to have you on here. So uh, let's start there. Where does this go now? It seems like does everything now, because there's a police investigation, does everything else go on hold until we find out what happened? No, not really. I mean, everything can kind of progress simultaneously, right? There were uh, three investigations or probes that started in January of this year. One of them was the Auditor General. We saw the re- the uh, results of that report last uh, two weeks ago, in which she kind of really shed light on the inner workings of how this whole Greenbelt deal was concocted. Um, then we have the Integrity Commissioner. He's conducting a probe into Housing Minister Steve Clark to determine whether there was any insider trading of information given to the developers to give them a heads up to say, hey, these lands could be removed. So if you're looking to buy, these would be the ones to buy. That is ongoing. And then third, we've got this, you know, police, not quite investigation, but a review of complaints. There were a lot of complaints that were made to uh, uh, the OPP about these Greenbelt deals. The OPP has been saying for months that they're reviewing all of the information. They actually said at one point that, you know, it was kind of difficult for them to dig up evidence. They didn't really have any evidence uh, to point to any kind of crime that had happened. But something changed over the last couple of days. I mean, the OPP spoke with the Auditor General about her findings, but then something has kind of morphed in that probe enough so that the OPP felt that now was the appropriate time to hand their files over to the RCMP so that the OPP was free of any conflict of interest perceptions. And the RCMP is now taking on what the RCMP says is an investigation in its infancy. Mm. And when I asked, and I want to get back to the RCMP in a second, but when I asked about whether everything sort of grinds to a halt here, the only reason I asked that is because typically any time any police are investigating anything that we know of, everybody always says, well, we can't discuss this because there's a police investigation going on. It's like the, the great out for anybody, any party, any issue, anything. If the police are investigating, we can't talk anything about it anymore. 
Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing. I mean, the premier's office has gone to great lengths to say this is not an investigation. I mean, they will argue that point until they're kind of blue in the face, saying this is not an investigation, being very technical about exactly what the OPP has been saying, which is this is a review, regardless of whether it's a review or an investigation. I mean, I would contend that if you call police and make a complaint, the moment the police officer picks up the phone to try to figure out what happened, that is something of an investigation. Um, but, but, you know, the, the premier's office isn't necessarily shying away from talking about the Greenbelt, but they're not really saying anything either. In fact, tomorrow on Friday will mark two full weeks since Premier Doug Ford has made himself available for any kinds of questions. And the questions are only building, right? Um, you know, now we want to know about this staffer who resigned and why the premier's office would have accepted that resignation if the premier has said all along that nothing wrong was done. If, if there was nothing wrong or the premier and the government has nothing to hide, then why is the staffer resigning from the Ontario government? Um, there are lots of questions about now how the government is going to deal with the RCMP. Has the RCMP requested any information, any documents, any access to servers? And then there's also the question of retaining information, right? By law, Ontario workers are supposed to retain all of their documents and emails, etc. You know, what effort is being done within the government to make sure that there is the retention of those documents? Because we all remember the former Liberal government, that was a big problem, the deletion of documents. And in fact, it led one person in uh, to, to jail. So, there are a lot of questions. The Premier has not held a news conference in nearly two weeks now, and the government isn't really talking about it. Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of hoping if they close their eyes and stand still that everything will go away, but it's it's not. It's only building. Colin, one of the things we know about 2023 is that every single thing is political. Everything is politics. You can't have an opinion on anything without it somehow being a political response to something. The RCMP, can they be seen as apolitical? Because for some, they fell into accusations, uh, fair or unfair, probably unfair, but when you know Trudeau was investigated for the Aga Khan and investigated for SNC and they didn't charge him, there were people who said, well, you know, political. Can the RCMP be involved in this and it not be seen as a political thing, no matter what happens? Well, well, I mean, you know, the OPP and the RCMP often will will swap investigations depending on, you know, whether there could be a perceived conflict of interest. Um, so in this in this case, the OPP says if there is any worry, we're removing ourselves from the equation. The OPP has a relationship with the Ontario government. They are funded by the Ontario government. Uh, you know, the, the commissioner of the OPP is appointed and reports to um, the, the Solicitor General in Ontario. So obviously, because you have that reporting relationship, it, it kind of creates a bit of a problem. Now, in, in 2013, the OPP had no problem investigating the former Liberal government. So it, it is a bit curious in terms of why this time around they found themselves in a conflict of interest situation. The OPP does, of course, provide security to the premier and to um, any member of cabinet who requires that security. Uh, and, and, you know, we all heard about the OPP plane taking the premier from Toronto to Windsor recently. So I'm not sure whether that mm. was what raised all of the questions. But the RCMP would be able to kind of conduct their work without having that that 
you know, um, cloud of any kind of suspicion because they are kind of removed from the Ontario government. They're funded by the federal government. And and because there's that layer, you know, I, I think a lot of people can look at that and say, OK, at least at least there isn't that relationship there that they can investigate without without worry of mm. any kind of perception of conflict of interest. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Thanks for jumping in this morning. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Winona Peach Festival returns this weekend. You will have all the peaches that you could possibly stuff into your mouth if you wanted to. Brittany Bramer from the Winona Peach Festival joins me now. Brittany, how are you today? Good. How are you? Have you ever heard that song before? No, I actually have not. <laughs> I, I, I think we've got a new theme song for the Winona Peach Festival. I just, just a thought, you know. Yeah, it does sound good. <laughs> so tell me, this. Uh, one of the things about the Winona Peach Festival, there there are a million festivals. Earlier this week, we were talking with Tim Potasek from Supercrawl, and one of the things he was pointing out, there are so many festivals now all competing for attention, and yet I don't know that there is a single person in this area in Southern Ontario that doesn't know of or hasn't heard about the Winona Peach Festival. Why have you been able to be so successful in being known over the years? Um, I think it's just word of mouth at the end of the day. And it's also, it's a free festival. There's no, you don't have to pay to come. Um, there's also parking. This year we actually have parking um, at the Winona Community Center, corner of Highway Winona Road. It's $15 and you walk right to the festival. And we also have free Wi-Fi. So if anybody doesn't have data, they're able to get onto our free Wi-Fi and able to text their friends or their parents and let them know where they are while they're at the festival. All right, so so for those who have never been before, it's called the Peach Festival. How much peach is involved in the Winona Peach Festival? Is this <laughs> is it a celebration of peaches for those who don't know, or is it something else? Oh, there's lots of peaches. You can um, there's tons. There's peach sundays. There's peach cobblers. There's peach crepes. Peach salsa. Grilled peaches. There's so much to get there mm. that is peaches. Uh, you know what? I have not had any breakfast yet and you're making me very, very hungry <laughs> talking about this. And I mean, who doesn't love peaches? That's the, uh, that's the other thing about this. So, okay. So there's all that, uh, but it's not, this is not just a like peach f- display or just, there's other things besides peaches. If, if for the two people listening who don't like peaches, I don't know who they might be, <laughs> but for the two people listening who are not into peaches, what else can they do? Oh, there's so much more they can do. There's um, Midway actually on Saturday morning from 10 to 11 a.m., there it's free rides uh you can also get your tickets at winona gardens for 40 dollars for 35 tickets it's about approximately 35 discount and that's only until the end of today and there's also arts and crafts there's tons of those they're amazing what they sell and there's commercial and there's a um of course there's the entertainment which we have brian mellow coming this year yeah canadian idol winner once upon a time yep Yes, exactly. Yeah, he'll be here Friday night, so he'll actually be here tonight, or next, tomorrow night, sorry. Tomorrow night, yeah. <laughs> it's okay, we all lose track. It's Thursday, it's the <laughs> middle of the week, I get it. I, I said that at the top of the show, you lose track of the days, it's all good. Tomorrow night, uh, Saturday, Freedom Train. Yes. And Sunday afternoon, Mystic Highway. How, how, how difficult is it? And again, going back to the idea that, uh, you know, we were talking with Supercrawl, how difficult is it these days though, even though you have such a well-known festival, there's so many things going on, how difficult is it to attract attention because there is just so much going on these days? Is it difficult? 
Um, honestly, I don't think it is because there's lots of signs up everywhere. Um, even like we have the HSR shuttle bus from Eastgate Square that comes in and brings people in and they, they get picked up at the same spot and go back to part where their cars park there or if they walk to the Eastgate Square. So then really, I don't think it's that hard that it's it's advertised everywhere. The um, This year, now you mentioned off the top that it's free. You can pay for parking, but it's free to get in. But there is, as I understand, to keep it free, you are accepting if people want to contribute, you will accept that. Yes, this year there will be um, containers out at each area when you come into the festival that if you're willing, if you can, to donate, that would be amazing to keep the festival going and continue keeping it free from years from now. It is, uh, it is the Winona Peach Festival. It starts, as I say, tomorrow at... Five, five, am I right? Yes, okay. Tomorrow at five runs from 10 in the morning, Saturday till 11 PM. But you mentioned that it's 10 till 11 on Saturday is free rides at the midway. After that, people can pay for them. And then 10 AM to 6 PM on Sunday. And again, for those who don't know where it is, where is the Peach Festival located if they're going to drive there? If they're going to drive there, there's two different entrances to come from, but uh, it is on in between uh, Barton and Highway 8, and in between 50 Road and Winona Road. But if you take the highway from QEW to get off at 50, come on up towards Barton Street and turn right, and it is right there if you were to drive. And there's also lovely neighbors that they you can uh, pay to park on their park their gravel, and then you can walk right into the Peach Festival. Just like the old Iverwind Stadium or Tim Hortons Field. There you go. You can yes. uh, you can give you can bring some business to the neighbors as well. Uh, Brittany Bramer from the Winona Peach Festival. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate you jumping in. You're welcome. That is uh, look if you're looking for something to do this weekend. There are far 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 less enjoyable things than eating a whole bunch of peaches and peach ice cream and peach sundaes and peach cobbler and what did she say peach crepes and oh man. I am suddenly absolutely (laughs) starving talking about nothing but eating peaches. Uh, We will take a break. Maybe I'll go find some food around here. I don't think we have any peaches, though, in the fridge. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Sometimes here in the city of Hamilton, well, anywhere, really, we take for granted sometimes the things that are in our own backyard. We look around other places and go, wow, those are amazing things to see. i got to go visit that city, and we forget what's right here. And I mentioned that because uh, we are celebrating in, here in the city and really in Canada, the anniversary of something that is in our backyard. It's in our city limits. That is the 80th anniversary, the 80th birthday of the HMCS Haida, which um, it, you've probably seen it as you've driven by. You probably know that it's in our harbor, but it is um, maybe people don't know the whole story of this ship that was a World War II vessel uh, has sunk more enemy surface tonnage than any other Canadian warship. It's a big deal. And it's sitting in our harbor, has been for 20 years, which actually is the number that really blows me away. Andy Barber is a Royal Canadian Navy veteran uh, with the HMCS Haida. Joins me now. Andy, thanks for doing this today. Oh, good morning. How are you? I am terrific. How are you? If I was any better, I would have canceled my OHIP. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Uh, you know, I want to get to the Haida, the history in a second, but I can't believe that it's 20 years that it's been in Hamilton. It seems like it was about four weeks ago they moved it in here. It doesn't, it can't be 20 years. Oh, it certainly is. And uh, <clears throat> it was thanks to um, uh, one of your former citizens, Sheila Copps, uh, who was Secretary of at that time. That came to our rescue. We were looking for money to actually uh, repair the ship's side, especially the port side when it was over in 
Ontario Place, it was on the lagoon side. And the lagoon side, of course, is where all the zebra mussels got attracted to. And we were starting to get a few leaks. But uh, we went around uh, Toronto and Ontario beating the bushes trying to raise money. And we were still about $5 million short. And uh, at that particular time, you might remember that there was a discovery center being built by Sheila uh, down there uh, at the harbor. And uh, she was looking for something that was going to basically uh, attract people. And so, as fate would have it, my buddy who served with me in Korea, uh, Stan Prowse, was her driver. I served aboard the Haida in Korea, by the way. And uh, he uh, mentioned to her that the boys were looking for some money. And she said, listen, if you don't mind bringing that ship over to uh, Hamilton, I will take it over as heritage minister and uh, we'll get the ship repaired. And uh, we'll put it alongside in Hamilton for people to see. It'll be an attraction also for my uh, discovery center. So that's the history, and that's how it got over there. There were, now you can correct my history at any point here if I get anything wrong, all right? But there, uh, as I understand it, this is a, a tribal class destroyer. There were 27 of them that were built for the Royal Canadian Navy. And this is the last one that survived. And as I mentioned off the top, it was one that was hugely successful in combat. Why, what was special about the Haida? Why, why did it do so well, and why did it survive when all the others didn't? Well, it starts at the top. They had one of the best captains that ever served in both the Royal Navy and Royal Canadian Navy, Harry DeWolf. And, um, <clears throat> and of course, uh, the uh, outside a great uh, crew there, especially the gunners. And, of course, the uh, eventually radar plotters when radar came aboard. But um, that, that would be uh, the reason for it. It was a lot of hard work, sweat, blood, and uh, training that went into uh, focusing on targets and um, she had the great speed. That was one of the fastest ships uh, in at the time in World War II as a tribal class destroyers. And uh, basically speaking, that ship is nothing but a floating gun deck. Now, I know I, <laughs> I served aboard it, lived aboard it, and I know some of the amenities are not the greatest, but, uh, but it is. It, the reason for that, I think, uh, her success in World War II, uh, and over in Korea, by the way, she was number two in the Train Busters Club which is another topic, I guess. But uh, in World War II, uh, well-trained crew, very good captain, and um, worked with the 10th Flotilla with her sister ship, uh, HMC Iroquois, uh, Huron, and a few of the other ones, Athabascan, especially the Athabascan. And, um, yeah, so that's where, that's where her... Uh, I was in a good position... I was ready to fight. Tell, and, tell me, uh, you, you mentioned about how, you know, there weren't a lot of amenities. Uh, I think a lot of people are always curious about this because most of us will never live or spend time on a warship. And I am sure that the modern warships that are being built are probably a little more comfortable for the people who are on it. What, what was life like? How much space did you have? What were the, what were the amenities or the situations like when you were living on there? Well, we uh, slept in hammocks for one. Uh, we had mystics. Um, and also, uh, the food was good. We had, uh, oh, sorry, I could tell you the story after, but the food was good. We did have, uh, you know, three squares a day. Uh, everybody was taking their turn and dishing them out, etc. But no, the, uh, the sleeping and, and moving. Now, I was asked that question uh, a little while ago as to when they asked, how many men did you have aboard it? And I said, when I went to Korea, I had 250 men. We came, crew members, and we came back, we had 260. 
And so uh, they said, 250 crew members, how did you all not bump into each other? And I explained to them that uh, each one of our trade groups, be it uh, stokers, radar plotters, uh, you name it, the officers, we all had our own section of the ship. It was called a mess deck. And, of course, there's three layers to that ship. Uh, the top layer, of course, being the main deck, the four rubber mess deck. And, of course, had two layers down. And um, in each one, one of us, we had, uh, you know, roughly about uh, 20 people in the mess deck. So spread throughout the ship. How, um, how we always had room. Andy, how we got to run here in just a second, but uh, very, very quickly, uh, usually, and it's a very unfortunate part of battle or war, but usually when you go to war with 250, you come back with fewer people. How did you come back with more people? Well, <laughs> we're coming back from Korea, and of course, all the, uh, some, of the, some of the diplomats and uh, some of the American people, they wanted to lift back to Canada. Oh, okay. And all right. We were stopping, we were showing our flag at each port along the way. So they well, want to drop sense. off at a specific point, you know. That makes sense. All right, I was I was trying to think. Okay, this is uh, this is backwards in wartime uh, numeric numbers. But uh, uh, listen, Andy Barber, Royal Canadian Navy veteran with the HMCS Haida, really, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about this today. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, and I hope that you guys are all going to come down to see us this weekend. We Ab- have uh, activities for everybody. Absolutely. Let me just tell them what what is coming up here because there is th- this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. There's a bunch of stuff for the birthday uh, going on down there. There are tours. There is a dance party. Uh, there's all kinds of other stuff to do with the 80th anniversary of the HMCS Haida. And I'm betting, Andy, as we go here, I'm betting you might be down there at some point this weekend. Yeah, I'm hoping I get down there uh, on Saturday or Sunday at least. Uh, we got my daughter visiting on Saturday, so I can't Perfect. can't see that. Andy, we got to run. We got to run, Andy, unfortunately, but thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Have a good one. You too, as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There has been a lot of talk about the moon again in recent months and years. We know that NASA and private companies are working together to try and well, there's going to be a Canadian astronaut that's going to circle the moon, and then we're going to try and land someone on the moon again in the next few years. Russia attempted this week to do a landing on the moon, on the south pole of the moon. That did not go so well. The vehicle went into a spin and crashed in the orbit. This morning, we're learning that India has now landed a rocket uh, on the south pole of the moon, which is uh, w- which is pretty remarkable. But why... When it's since 1969, so 54 years ago, NASA put people on the moon. You would think over the course of 54 years with the technology that we have, the advancements and everything, this should be much, much simpler now than it was. And yet it seems like it's just as difficult. Why is that? Dr. Elena Hyde is the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory, the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. She joins us now. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Yeah, you're you're quite right. It is still very difficult to land on the moon, to go to the moon. Uh, the moon is, I suppose, worth remembering that it is very, very far away. And when we look at it <laughs> yes. from here on here on Earth, especially um, coming up this August 30th, we're going to have that uh, big uh, full blue moon. And it it doesn't seem so far away, but it's it's you know about 385,000 kilometers. That's in Canadian terms about 92 drives from Vancouver to Toronto, or 46 round trips. So it really is 
quite a distance. And it's not just the distance, but when you're that far away, even light takes a second to to get there. So communication is is an issue. Um, being able to tell where you're going is an issue. Of course, most of these crafts are not uh, crude. Um, that's uh, some exceptions that you mentioned there before. <laughs> but there's no GPS, and we have to kind of shoot them out from Earth and hope they hit their target. So it is um, a, basically precision um, and, of course, communication. But also, we're trying to hit the moon in a way that our craft isn't damaged. Right. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. Um... <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing that's amazing to me about this. And, and I don't know if this is exactly right, but I've heard this so many times that the, uh, the Apollo rockets, the, the ships that went there and took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and all the rest, and then the rest of the people that went there, that the entire computing power on those was less than what we have in our iPhone right now. And we're so far technologically ahead that surely everything you've just said obviously is right. It is a long way and there's all these things that would get in the way, but surely we, we've, we've managed to make everything else seemingly easier in technology. Why has the technology not bridged that gap more than it seems to have? Well, and it, it is interesting. You're right. The computing power was an issue. There was a, an early Apollo mission where they, they did have to make some last minute corrections with the uh, with the astronaut to avoid hazards. Um, and that's, you know, computing power is, is one thing. But uh, there's no atmosphere on the moon, <laughs> so we can't even slow our craft down very much. And we can do a better job of, for example, saying where they're going to land. So if you have things like a, a landing circle, which is this sort of imaginary circle they draw, and they say, we're going to aim here for the moon. So we can do a better job of landing sort of inside that circle. <laughs> But we still have problems with, of course, gravity um, being what it is. It's going to try to pull the craft down. And if we're off just a little bit in what we've calculated for our orbit, it's going to be a crash instead of a landing. And this uh, recent one, the Chandrayaan-3, it wasn't just attempting a, um, you know, a landing with, say, for example, balloons or something where you just crash into the surface. They wanted what's called a soft landing. Yes which is a gentle controlled landing that won't damage the spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they did apparently. I mean, it's, it's, uh, again, it's, it's pretty remarkable because I don't know, m tell me I'm missing something here, but India has not been any kind of player in the space race over the years. All of a sudden India is in this thing and does what Russia couldn't do. I, I maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that, but I am. The Chandrayaan program has been a, a wonderful success. So Chandrayaan 1 was one of the um, the main missions which helped to look for water on the moon, which is why this is so interesting in the southern pole where both Chandrayaan uh, 1 and, of course, the Russian craft wanted to go. They have actually mapped water in some of these craters that never see sunlight. And so finding out what exactly is there um, is going to be is going to be huge. The does the fact that it's so difficult still does that speak more to the challenge or the fact that we got there in 1969 without all the computers and without all the knowledge and without a map to uh, tr like they were blazing a new trail? Does that speak more to the brilliance of the people who did that back then 
that without all the stuff that we have now, they were still able to do that. Does it make it even more remarkable that Neil Armstrong got there? I think a bit of both, really. And I mean, depending on who you who you talk to about, uh, you know, which aspects of space travel, there's something that people always, always say. It's, it's very important to, to reiterate, especially in today's age of lots of different people trying, as you say, private companies and, and NASA. And, um, you know, now that we have the Indian Space Agency stepping in. Of course, space is still very, very difficult, <laughs> and it's it's had a lot of a lot of failures. And of course, just um, you know, even just recently, we've seen even a, a fairly established space program like the Russians had some trouble getting their craft to that South Polar uh, area. So it is a very difficult. Um, a, a very difficult endeavor to try, I suppose I should say. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, as I say, we have a Canadian that is scheduled to go up and circle the moon uh, sometime in the next year and a half or so. 2025, I think, was the year. And then hopefully land on the moon again. And um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, fingers crossed because, you know, it is, you're right. It clearly is still an immense challenge to do this despite all the technology we have. Uh, Dr. Elena Hyde, director of the Adam, or the Allen I. Carswell Observatory in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. And I wish all the best of luck to the Artemis program and the Indian Space Agency and everything. So it's very interesting times. Appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.